The Old Testament text is the 127th Psalm. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior or in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, or who fills his quiver with them, I should say. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The word of the Lord. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, probably a number of you know that uh, this series of sermons on psalms is entitled Favorite Psalms. So whose favorites? Mine. (laughs) There you go. It's not like there's like a section of the Psalter that says, okay, these are the best. It's just these are Pastor Wiley's favorites. And this particular psalm is something, uh, a psalm that I could pontificate on for days. So when we get done around three o'clock, just joking, I won't do that to you. Actually, tonight I'm going to take uh, the theme that I addressed at the conference that I was speaking at this uh, past week, and it actually ties into this. So uh, what I don't uh, say this morning, some of it will be uh, there uh, addressed this evening, particularly as it relates to that matter of the arrows. So if you'd like to learn about arrows and collecting them and sharpening them and so forth, come on out tonight. But um, one of the things that's worth noting here as we begin is the uh, opening of this psalm uh, uh, refers to two social institutions that uh, we don't think about uh, in the ways that people in the past thought about them. By the way, the term institution is not a bad word. We live in a world where the term institution in the minds of many people uh, has a negative connotation, like he's been institutionalized. (laughs) Obviously, that's not something you want to have happen to you. But uh, the term institution uh, just refers to the fact that something has been instituted, something that has been established and is the case, and often is taken for granted. But in antiquity, the the house and the city were considered the fundamental institutions of human life. Uh, And in the ancient view, there was a kind of symbiotic relationship between between the oikos, the Greek word for house, and the polis, the Greek word for city. Uh, It wasn't as though these things were at odds with each other at all. They needed each other. Households uh, made up a city, and the city was intended to provide a, a environment in which households could flourish and enjoy protection. So these things went together. It wasn't Walden Pond, in other words. You remember Walden Pond, right? David Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, that New England transcendentalist. He wrote a book called Walden Pond, an experiment in self-sufficiency. It's been in, you know, a book that people have looked to for inspiration for many years, and there are a number of good things about it. 
But, you know, just kinda, to kind of put things in perspective, um, the place he built uh, that little house that he lived in, that little cabin, was borrowed land. It actually belonged to Emerson. So it wasn't like he was out in the wilderness. He was just outside of town. And uh, his mother did his laundry every week. So it wasn't like he was, like, really roughing it. It was, it was an experience in which, uh, you know, he had food for thought. You know, he had some time and uh, he spent some time, uh, use, you know, used the time profitably in terms of writing. But it wasn't the kind of get-back-to-nature story that I think sometimes we think it is. If you want that sort of thing, read Jack London or something like someone like that, you know. And, that, and in, in his stories, you know, people die. Uh, you know, when, he, when you're talking about Thoreau, he didn't die. He lived pretty well. Uh, but this notion that kind of in the state of nature, uh, we are alone in the wilderness. That's kind of the natural state. It comes from Thomas Hobbes and some of the early theorists of modern political theory like Locke. And with those guys, well, to sum up uh, Hobbes' view, the state of nature, in the state of nature, man's existence is poor, solitary, brutish, and short. What he had in mind was, you know, a naked person completely alone in the wilderness, you know, like a reality television show. <laughs> and that was his understanding of the state of nature. But in point of fact, it begs the question, is that really the natural state of things when it comes to human beings? No. Human beings are social creatures. That's what comes naturally to us. Uh, and that's why we enjoy, sometimes more than less, <laughs> more or less, the company of other people. We need other people in our lives. Um, that's the natural state of affairs. And in antiquity, this was accepted. This was sort of like common sense. Everybody knows this. Households are small communities who make up larger communities, cities. Now, the modern view, as I've already noted, begins with the individual. And in the modern conceit, we prescind nature, not in point of fact, but just kind of hypothetically, theoretically. And we stand outside of the community and we ponder, do I want to get involved in that? And according to Thomas Hobbes, you know, you do want to get involved with it, in it because if you don't, you're dead. That's basically the formula. Uh, when you get to, say, John Locke, it's a little more sophisticated, a little more upbeat. You want to get involved in the community because it's a place where you can enjoy a prosperous life. Uh, when you get to Rousseau, it's a whole different story, and let's not go there. But uh, with regard to each one of these thinkers, there's a kind of social contract. Have you heard the term social contract? The idea, of course, when you have a contract is you have different parties who, you know, enter into a relationship for, you know, uh, the mutual benefit of the parties. And there's a kind of formal arrange arrangement. There's a kind of contract that you enter into. This, of course, at the level of just plain, you know, human experience is nonsense. It doesn't actually work that way. You were born into a family. Maybe it wasn't the kind of family that, you know, you wished it was. But nevertheless, you were born into a community, into a town, into a city, into a set of institutions that educated you and 
nourished you? I mean, you didn't go out and forage for your food, I don't think anyway. <laughs> so this is just the state of affairs. You and I enjoy the benefits of being born into a social world. That's what's natural. It's important to state this because even in the church, we've lost sight of this. There's a kind of me and Jesus, we're on this journey aloneness kind of thing that you see every once in a while. You've come across it probably. You maybe even have felt it. I don't need the church. It's full of hypocrites. Well, you're a hypocrite too, so join in. You know, that's basically the best response to that nonsense. But, you know, the idea that the most essential thing in the Christian life is, you know, being with Jesus in the garden alone. You remember C, uh, what's it, Miles? Yeah, Austin Miles, C. Austin Miles in 1913, in the garden. I've noted this before. It's a favorite, particularly, of a, you know, from people at, at, you know, from, you know, the 30s and 40s. And Elvis made a hit, you know, he, he did a cover of In the Garden starts off with this line. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known. Really? No one else has ever known this. It's just you. You and Jesus alone in the garden. And what garden is this? Are we talking about the Garden of Gethsemane? Are we talking about, you know, the Garden of Eden? No, it's the garden of your little inner life, your heart, where you withdraw from the world and all those nasty people who let you down. And you enjoy this sort of private, personal experience. Well, that's pretty much what we see all around uh, evangelicalism. But the truth of the matter is that we are made for each other. We're made for God and each other. Anytime that we try to approach the Christian life with the, the mindset, I'm into God, just not into you, we are not into God. How can you love God whom you've never seen? when you can't love the person you see every day. We all feel tempted to turn our back on the church. I mean, you know, it's one of the things you see as a pastor over the years, people in quest of the perfect church. And, uh, you know, they usually come and they're kind of taken with things for a while and say, oh, this is the greatest church ever. You are the best pastor ever. Six months later, they hate your guts, they're gone. I've seen it again and again and again. You know what? You need to develop a little tolerance, and I mean that in a good sense. You need to learn to put up with things that you may not fully approve of. Now, I'm not talking about heresy. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about people who get on your nerves. This is what long-suffering is about, right? So if you're going to withdraw into your little cave, into your little hut that you build for yourself, uh, you're going to be dishonest because uh, there are a number of things that you enjoy, benefits that you enjoy, that you can't attribute to your own selves. Who taught you to pray? Where'd that Bible come from that you read and enjoy so much? 
there were other Christians involved in this whole enterprise, and you don't recognize your debts. I remember one time I asked the rhetorical question of Sunday class, Sunday school class, where do, where do our Bibles come from? And there was a woman in the, in the church who said, from the store. I said, well, yeah, before that, <laughs> you know, but that was like, that's, you know, just me and Jesus and the store. That's all I need, you know. Now, there, there were other Christians who were like laboring for like thousands of years, copying the texts, you know, translating them, you know, writing commentaries to help you understand them. Elders in the church who were trying to formulate the doctrines that we can, can affirm based on Scripture. You know, there, there were people, there was your mother who taught you to pray. There was your Sunday school teacher who taught you to pray. There were a lot of people that made your personal relationship with Jesus possible. Don't they deserve a little credit? That's the church, right? That's the church. Not perfect. There's always going to be a problem. But get over it. Now, we're told here that um, the Lord builds. So in other words, these communities, churches, cities, the Lord's involved with this, in this, and the Lord watches. So the Lord watches and builds social institutions. When we take these matters onto our, you know, onto our own shoulders and try to, to, to accomplish uh, you know, these feats without God's uh, oversight and in service to Him, our, our labors are characterized by anxious toil. You see that in the, in the text, you know, anxious toil. It's the Lord who builds, and unless the Lord builds, it, those who build labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches, the watchman watches in vain. In other words, we're wasting our time <laughs> if the Lord is not there to help us. No matter how well things seem to be going today, I've got some bad news for you. You could be wiped out overnight. Overnight. The Lord is the one who provides. The Lord is our security. Um, the house is not the security. The city is not the security. The Lord is the one who makes those institutions secure. So let's just think about, let's just think about households. Let's think about cities. Um, in particular, I want to think about cities and watching and the who was the first city builder? You remember? Cain. City of Enoch. Now, why did he build? Well, he was afraid. He had been cut off from the land. There was some anxiety that was present in his efforts. Babel. People were anxious because they were afraid that there would be divisions that would divide the community and separate people. And they wanted significance. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They didn't want to be forgotten. All of those things are just fine and worthwhile. And we see, in fact, when we look to Abram, that uh, he sought a city whose builder and maker is God. And he had the promise that God would give him a name and that he would be a blessing to you and me, all the families of the earth. So the things that these people longed for weren't bad. Security, significance, Unity, they're great. But if the Lord is not involved in these efforts, is not at work in and through them, we labor in vain. Now, I want to think a little bit about houses and churches because particularly in our tradition, uh, there have been ways we've gotten this terribly wrong. <laughs> I 
And I'd like to reflect with you on the, the nature of the relationship between houses and churches. The first thing I'd like you to note is they shouldn't consume each other. They shouldn't consume each other. Uh, they are distinct institutions. They are both uh, legitimate institutions that have been established by God. And the problem that we have, uh, generally uh, speaking, not just in the reform world, but even in the larger evangelical world and the church uh, universal around the world, is that we can uh, have over-realized or under-realized eschatologies. And the kind of over-realized or under-realized eschatology will affect the way we think about our houses and the church. Let me give an example of what I mean. First of all, what is an eschatology? Eschaton is just a fancy Greek word for the end of the world, okay? So it's, it's like the goal, it's the final objective, it's where we're heading, it's the new Jerusalem, that's the eschaton, it's the happy ending of history. Now, we know a few things about that ending. In Luke, the Lord is challenged by some Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, that's why they were so sad, you see, that's an old preacher joke. But anyway, so they didn't believe in the resurrection and they, they they tried to stump the preacher. I've been, I've been subject to these questions, the preacher-stumper questions. And so they, they come to him and they say, okay, there's this uh, you know, woman, she's married to a man, first, uh, the first husband dies, second husband marries her, and then that husband dies. I think by like the third or fourth, I would say like, you know, what's with this woman? And <laughs> why does she keep killing her husbands? <laughs> but anyway, eventually, you know, she, all, seven, all seven brothers have married this one woman. And the question to Jesus is, who's her husband in the resurrection? And Jesus says, you know, he just cuts the Gordian knot and just says, you guys are just completely lost. You have no clue what you're talking about. Because in the resurrection, we are neither married nor given in marriage. Now that is something that's legitimate. It's for the period of time that we find ourselves in, in this world. But there will be a day when your wife is your sister in the Lord and not your wife. Your husband will be your brother in the Lord and not your husband. There's a day coming when all that will come to an end. Now an overrealized eschatology is an eschatology that says, Right now is when that happens. And there have been people who have actually like tried it. The Shakers, for example. The Shakers, you know, you're probably not uh, familiar with them in terms of their practices and their beliefs, but at least you're, you're probably aware of Shaker furniture or Shaker boxes, stuff like that. There's a marvelous documentary uh, that was made by Ken Burns about the Shakers. Remember the guy who did the Civil War documentary? Uh, and I recommend it to you because it's a good introduction to who they were and some really fascinating things. They did some, some interesting things. But they were founded by a woman named Anne Lee. And this is late 18th century, early 19th century uh, period where she lived. I think she died in the late 19th century or late 18th century. Anyway, she lost all of her children in childbirth. And I think it just messed with her mind. And she developed... a kind of heretical uh, church known as the Shakers. And essentially, Shaker communities believe that Mother Anne was the incarnation of Christ, the last incarnation of Christ, and that the community uh, consequently 
that they belonged to was the end of the world, the eschaton, which meant that all the people who were married were no longer married. All the children that they had were brought together and raised in common. And you can go uh, you know, throughout the, the, uh, the Northeast and see their old villages. By the way, they're all dead because there were no more conjugal relations between husbands and wives. And they were completely dependent upon conversions. And it's kind of tough to get people to join a church like that. So anyway, it, it, they are no more. But we have some things that we can look to and uh, appreciate. And by the way, in progressive circles, and I mean talking about politically liberal settings, the Shakers are almost like, well, they're revered. You go to the... You go to the Shaker villages where you know, they've got the museums and you've got these quotes from Yo-Yo Ma and Ken Burns and other luminaries just praising them for all of their enlightened ways, but they're dead. An over-realized eschatology. Now there's an under-realized eschatology and that's Mormonism. You're married to the, your husband or your wife forever. There is no end. <laughs> that's it. You know, so you just kind of go from this reality into the next, and it just never stops. You know, how do you reconcile that with that passage in Luke, with the conversation with Jesus and said, well, it, it, there is obviously some glossing and some things that, the, you know, the, the Mormons have done to sort of bury that and say that isn't a legitimate understanding of that passage and so forth. But anyways, the main point is that in either case, what you have is an overrealized or an underrealized eschatology. And what ends up happening in both cases, in some sense, either the house consumes the church or the church consumes the house. There needs to be a symbiotic relationship between the two. They are related, but they're not to be confused. They should build each other up, not compromise each other. I think there were a number of things that in our particular neck of the woods that would have been really, I think, uh, good in terms of recovering an approach to children and their place in the church that has been lost in the larger evangelical world over the last hundred years. So once upon a time, there were no Sunday schools. And it wasn't that long ago. Sunday school originally wasn't intended to be a place where your children were was at, you know, would be educated in the faith. Sunday schools were a strategy to get all those urchins that were living on the streets in London into school. That was the original intent. Back in the day, in the 19th century, during the Industrial Revolution, when everybody was leaving the farm and moving to the city and kids were just like running wild in the streets without any parental supervision because mom and dad were in the factories all day, or worse, there were a bunch of Christians who said, let's go out and educate these kids, and they established Sunday school. And in those Sunday schools, they literally taught kids to read and write. That's what the original Sunday schools were about. And then somebody had the bright idea that, well, you know, mom and dad, they need to have some relief from the burden of raising their kids in the Lord, so we'll do it for them as the church. And that's what led to Sunday school as we know it today. If you go back east into New England, those old meeting houses, they didn't have Sunday schools. No Sunday school space at all. Later, they were added as an addition, or in some cases, this is fascinating, they would actually jack up the church and put another floor underneath. But the original church was just like this, and all the kids were with their parents in church. They didn't have children's church. They didn't have 
youth group church. <laughs> they didn't have 30 different kinds of church going on in some big megaplex like you see in so many places today. It was, everybody was in, in it together. And that's the way it was for like 18 centuries. All the stuff that we now see and think of as sort of like the way to do it is novel. That's not the way it was. Parents were involved in catechizing their children. Elders would come to the home and work with the parents and help them catechize children. It was in the home that the education, the Christian education of their children was conducted. But what we've seen today is the church, the institutional church has consumed the household. It can work the other way too. The house church movement, for all of the good things that we see associated with that, can consume the institution of the church. And you're like, well, where does this stop? You know, you know, Uncle Bob is not only Uncle Bob, he's also my pastor. And, you know, <laughs> where does this stop? You know what I'm saying? The church is an institution and the household is an institution, but they do relate to each other because in some sense, the house of God is reflected in the households that we live in on a daily basis. You could say that our households are little images of the great eschatological household where the Lord is the husband and the church is the bride, right? And that's what we see in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. That's the framework within which Paul is talking to people in Ephesus. He's saying, understand, your little household is connected to something really big. This is a mystery. But the union of a husband and wife, the fact that they become one flesh and share all things in common, is actually a small sort of representation of the big story, the big household, the household of God. And the reason why the church, as the bride, can be assured that the resurrection includes her is because her groom, her husband, has been raised, and what goes for one goes for the other. That's the logic. That's the logic. And that's why we don't, uh, you know, depart from these patterns. And when it comes to the city, the, ch the church is like a city. In a sense, it's like uh, an early version or a reflection of or an image of the New Jerusalem. So what we participate in on an ongoing basis as the church, the communion of saints, is in some sense intended to help us look forward to the end of the story. So the church is not to be confused with the New Jerusalem, but it does have a relationship to it, and the same thing can be said for our houses and our churches. Both are important. We can't just like allow one to consume the other. By the way, this is the reason why I didn't marry my children. I don't mean that in the sense that I married my children, but I'm a pastor, right? I can't play two roles in the ceremony. I'm either the father of the bride, or the father of the groom, or I'm the pastor. Now I know there's a lot of sentimental pastors out there. I just want to marry my. I get it. I get it. You know, that's that's sweet. But what it does is it fails to address this important distinction. Who are you representing in this particular moment, in this particular place? 
pastor should be representing Christ and the work of the church. Father should be representing his household. I could put maybe two hats on or whatever, or make tell everybody in the room, okay, stop pretending or thinking of me as the father for a minute. Now I am the pastor. It's a lot easier just to say, I don't marry my kids. Anyway, if you want to challenge me on that, go for it. But speaking of kids, I'd like to reflect with you just briefly on the fact that children are a blessing. And we see that in this psalm. So we're told, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame. Isn't that an interesting statement? He shall not be put to shame. When he speaks with his enemies in the gates. His enemies. Wow. Now, uh, we live in a world where people aren't so sure that children are a blessing. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, sometimes they're actually viewed as liabilities. I read an interesting piece, uh, treatment by the U.S. Department of Agriculture on what it costs to raise a kid. Now, why the U.S. Department of Agriculture thought that this was something that it should study, I don't know. But here's the result. This, was, I think, was in 2017. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, each child will cost you $304,480 to raise to the age of 17. Now, if you think that that's a thing that should discourage you from raising kids, you're completely lost. Um, because what is not addressed in that treatment is all of the many assets that you enjoy because you have children in your life. Children are not just a money sink that we pour our resources into. Uh, they are a means by which God blesses us. We live in a very odd time. There's, and it's starting to, it's starting to sort of a, a, a occur to people that we're in a global fertility crisis. I don't know if you noticed this, that Elon Musk of all people uh, is concerned about it. And throughout the world, uh, when it comes to being able to replace ourselves, we're not able to do it. Uh, the population of Japan is shrinking right now by over half a million people every year. Every year. Italy's just a mess. Even, you know, well, South Korea. Lowest fertility rate in the world is in South Korea right now. So this isn't a matter of, you know, uh, not having the financial resources to raise kids or have kids. Uh, South Korea, relatively speaking, is a prosperous country. United States, same way. Um, what was that guy's name? I can't remember. But there was, remember the book, The Population Bomb? came out in the early 70s, inspired by the Club of Rome. There was this kind of Malthusian philosophy that, you know, inspired it all, that, you know, everything's going to come crashing down because there are too many people and... All of that. Well, what we are experiencing now is the depopulation bomb. Right now, they're predicting that East Germany, or Germany, I should say, not East Germany, but just Germany, uh, will no longer be a significant uh, manufacturing uh, country uh, within the next 50 years, simply because they've not replaced themselves. We're in population decline everywhere in the world. 
And what we see is that, by and large, the median age in all countries has gone up. Now, when I tell people that the median age in my church is like 14, <laughs> people are like astonished. Are you kidding me? And I was like, no, I actually think it's about 14. I'd love to get the real numbers. It'd be great if we actually did an analysis and say, really, where is it? But I, I bet you we're in the mid-teens. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's you know, Jiho had uh, the Christmas choir practice here. I did a quick count. We had like over 50 kids, you know, and, they, and there were still a bunch of kids who weren't participating. <laughs> By the way, kids, be in the Christmas choir. But children are a heritage, and, they're, and we're told that they're arrows. Isn't that a fascinating? I want to talk, as I noted earlier, more about this uh, a reference to children as arrows uh, tonight. So come back for that if you'd like to hear me address that. But what you see here is there's a marvelous reversal that occurs in the course of the, of the psalm. Fathers, uh, over the years, have thought of themselves as protectors of children. But here in this psalm, by the time you get to the end, Who's protecting whom? The children are protecting the parents. Marvelous thing to note. Don't need to be afraid when I engage with my enemies in the gates because I have five big boys standing right behind me. <laughs> you might be my drift. That's what we're talking about here. And uh, the insight that the return on investment when it comes to kids is just... Uh, impossible to calculate uh, is something that you only appreciate with age. It's only young people without kids that can be so stupid about kids. It's people who have kids who are old, older, and have been able to see their children grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and are living for the Lord who know that this is crazy. These are not liabilities. These are assets. But when we think about, well, here, let me give you an example of some, you know, and it's not as though this has been something that uh, has been lost on people uh, over the years. I remember when I was uh, in Cambridge, Marla and I had some had, had a Haitian family that we were connected to, friends, the, the Michelles, uh, and Jackie Michelle was a pastor, and they had five kids. I think it was five, right? They could have six, five. Anyway, uh, I remember one day he, he asked me, why do white people hate children? It was like right out of the, like, what do you mean? <laughs> Maybe some, but not all of us. <laughs> he said, well, why do you spend so much time trying not to have them? That was his question to me. It was fascinating. But uh, in another conversation, he told me, he said, in, in Haiti, uh, we have a, a name for the oldest son. It's a nickname. The Crutch. Guess what that's getting at? This is the one who's going to prop you up in old age, take care of you when no one else does, make certain that your interests are addressed. Arrows in the quiver. Thinking about this, isn't it interesting that we're told in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? The word sin, the, word, the English word sin, has a, obviously a Greek word that uh, you know, the English word sin is translated from. And that word is harmatia. Harmatia simply means to miss the mark. We fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have missed the mark. So there's a target. There's a purpose for our lives. There's something, there's an objective that we're aiming at. And with that in mind, hitting the target is what we're, off, what we're striving for, right? It's what we're striving for. 
What does it mean to hit the target? This is where, you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that first question and answer, that's, our, that's the gift of our tradition to the larger church, in my mind, because everybody thinks it's great. Everybody thinks it's great. What is the chief end of man? The goal, the target, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The means and the end are reconciled in God. Duty and joy are not things that you have to choose between. They're the same thing. And as Christians, we can know God and enjoy Him forever as we serve Him. That's the target. That's the goal. That's what we're aiming at with our kids. We want them to hit that mark. The problem, of course, is there's an adversary who's also firing at us. Fiery darts. And I'll talk more about that tonight. Anyway, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this marvelous psalm written by Solomon. We're told that he wrote over a thousand, but we only have two in the Psalter. Uh, we're glad this, that this one has been preserved, Lord, and help us to find encouragement in it. In Christ's name, amen.